Hello, and welcome to the weekly message podcast from Crozet United Methodist Church. We invite you to join us in person any Sunday for our contemporary service at 9 a.m. or for our more traditional service at 11 a.m. We also stream full services live on our Facebook page. Please visit us online at www.crozetunitedmethodist.org for further information. We hope you enjoy this week's message from Crozet UMC. So today we close out our worship series on our doctrinal standards, the articles of faith that we have within our Book of Discipline, which is uh, a very compact version of our United Methodist history, our doctrine, what we believe in our polity, how we organize and run ourselves from the local church all the way up to the global denomination. And so the Book of Discipline contains within it, uh, under section three of the restrictive rules, paragraph 17, article one, a standard by which we have our articles of religion. It says, the general conference shall not revoke, alter, or change our articles of religion, or establish any new standards or rules of doctrine contrary to our present existing and established standards of doctrine. And over the course of our series, we began with the Trinity, we've talked about what the scriptures are, we've talked about our sacraments, we've talked about a whole multitude of things covered by our 25 articles of religion, but today we're going to end on the state. We had the church last week, we'll do the state today, for there are three articles specifically about the government and our, na our nation, our national state here. So articles... 23, 24, and 25 are about the state. And they are entitled, The Rulers of the United States of America, of Christian Men's Goods, and of a Christian Man's Oath. And again, if you consider the historical context under which these were originally written, composed, and then given to us, um, they come from a time when almost all language and plurality was masculine. And of course, we were founded by British citizens. And so you're going to have some of that beautiful old English in here. Um, I'm not trying to give you a morning Shakespearean class. When I was at William and Mary, I had an 8 a.m. class on Shakespearean sonnets, and I would never intentionally do that to you. However, uh, I am going to read these to you, and they are in Old English. So, of the rulers of the United States of America, the president, the Congress, the general assemblies, the governors, and the councils of state, as delegates of the people, are the rulers of the United States of America, according to the division of power made to them by the Constitution of the United States and by the constitutions of their respective states. And the said states are a sovereign and independent nation and ought not to be subject to any foreign jurisdiction. So this is an acknowledgement that um, as we were beginning, we had our first Methodist denomination actually form here in the United States after the, uh, the colonies here in the Americas decided to rebel against the British crown and were no longer under the sovereignty of the monarch. And so this is in recognition of that, but it also states that we recognize that we have earthly authority here that oversee us in governance. That would include the president, the Congress, the general assemblies, the governors, and the councils of each of our states or in our case, our commonwealth, and that we need to recognize that, but you'll also notice that it says as the delegates of the people, this is a, represent, a representative democracy that we have, right? This is a democratic republic. This is the way in which we operate. And you'll notice that it's not telling us that we need to be constantly trying to overthrow the government. That was not our understanding as a people then, and it hopefully is not now, because that would be in conflict with our article of religion. 
But Article um, 24 is of our possessions, the things that you own of material value. The riches and goods of Christians are not common as touching the right title in possession of the same as some do falsely boast. Notwithstanding, every man ought as of such things as he possesseth, liberally give alms to the poor according to his ability. So there are places, especially in the book of the Acts of the Apostles, where the early apostles and disciples of Jesus Christ were living together and kind of pooling their resources. They were living kind of an early form of socialism because one, they didn't have much, and two, they were in this all together, and three, it just worked out that it was easier to do it that way. However, the United Methodist Church has never felt that it owns what you own, it has never felt that you lose your personal right to property, as is articulated here. You have the right and title and possession of your things. And the church would not co-opt them from you, nor would it expect you to co-opt one another's possessions. Instead, it does say that each of us ought to, as we can, liberally give of what we have, whether it is our material goods or our financial resources, to the poor, as we are able this is a matter of conscience. It is also an expression of our faith, but we are not going to come to you and say, you must give this to the church or to this mission or to this ministry. That's not how we function as a church. And so we would never claim that what is yours is now ours. Now, there are other denominations that have practiced various forms of this. They don't last very long because people like to know where their stuff is going. And uh, the United Methodist Church is never going to come and take your things. So Article 25 is of a Christian man's oath. We confess that vain and rash swearing is forbidden for Christian men by our Lord Jesus Christ and James his apostle. So we judge that Christian, the Christian religion doth not prohibit, but that a man may swear when the magistrate requireth in a cause of faith and charity. So it be done according to the prophet's teaching in justice, judgment, and truth. In the early days of the Methodist movement, people were trying to reconcile what they read in the scriptures with what is being required of them. If you've ever gone to court, um, you might remember or you might have witnessed that people will often be asked to raise their right hand and to swear that they will tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. Well, there were people who were saying, we're not supposed to swear in the scriptures. The Bible tells us not to swear. And Jesus repeatedly, in all four gospel accounts, says you should not be swearing to God, that you should say what you mean. Yes should mean yes, and no should be no. And that if you live your life like that, then somebody shouldn't require you then to swear to God, and you shouldn't have to do that. Now, they've actually kind of removed that from a lot of um, the magistrate's wording, where you don't have to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, so help you God which helps alleviate some of that tension. But this is saying that you are not in violation of our understanding of Christendom in the Methodist tradition if you go to court and you are required by the magistrate to swear in, and you do, that you are doing so in accordance with the prophet's teaching about justice, judgment, and truth. And so you're okay. But don't go around swearing to God all the time. That's a whole other biblical problem. But if you go to court, you're going to be okay. And that may seem kind of facetious to you, but really people were struggling as a new country was forming and as a new denomination was coming into existence to make sure that they got it as close to right as you can get it in the beginning. They didn't want to make sure that things were just kind of flippant and happening. They wanted to be as solid as they could because they knew that people were going to come and build on top of that. And so this was Methodist attempt to make sure that it covered some of the big questions being asked. Now, I don't know if you've ever had a crisis of conscience where you wondered if you went to court if God was going to be upset with you because you promised to tell the truth. 
But these were some of the problems. It's kind of interesting to look back at what the big issues were back in those days. So that's where the state is. But why does the church have a position on the state? Well, because Christians have been concerned with its relationship with the state, the governance, the, the political power of its day, going all the way back to Jesus. Now, in his day of, of earthly ministry, Rome had conquered the people of Israel. They had not been their own people for quite a while, at least since the Babylonian exile. They had become vassal states. They were vassal state underneath Babylon, then from Persia, and then the Greco-Roman empires that followed. And they had not been independent. They had, they had kings who were more of puppet kings, and they served now the Roman Empire. And to further underscore this, there was a governor's palace that was built in the holy city of Jerusalem, which was meant to be the capital of the southern kingdom of Judah. And the person that resided in there was appointed by Rome. In this case, it would be Pontius Pilate. And the people resented paying taxes. How amazing! I know no one has ever gone, I really wish we didn't have to pay taxes, but Christians have long wondered if we have to pay taxes. And in fact, this was a question that was happening within Judaism because one of the ways that world powers continue to keep power over and to fund their colonial efforts was through taxes. And the other way, they might um, co-opt some of your young men to be in their military force, but nobody was ever really interested in conscripting Jews for service. They're very difficult to take to war because they won't wear your outfits and your uniforms and they won't eat what you cook and they're not gonna do anything on the Sabbath. And so most people were like, just pay us and you can keep your people. And so that's why they paid even higher taxes than other people's. So for them, when they were asking this question, there's a lot at stake. I mean, not just the fiscal burden of it, but are we talking about acquiescing to human power? Now, to give you a little bit more context here, the, the part that we read opens up with the Pharisees coming, and the Pharisees are the ancestors to modern-day rabbis. After the Babylonian exile, people did repopulate and move back and kind of spread back out into the promised land, but more and more people as time went on were a great geographical distance from the holy city of Jerusalem, and that was the only place they could worship. They had to go to Jerusalem to worship in the temple. You couldn't just have a place to worship. The synagogues that they built were places of learning. They didn't worship there. If you didn't live on top of Jerusalem and you couldn't go to worship on your Sabbath and keep it holy, then you went to a, a synagogue where people would read the Holy Scriptures, generally the Torah, the first five books of the Bible, and there would be some teaching. Um, early uh, versions of preaching would happen at that point, and people would offer some prayers. They might sing some of their religious songs that we know as psalms, and then they would go home. But this, is, this was becoming more and more popular because more and more people didn't live close enough to the temple to be there consistently. And so the sphere of influence of the Pharisees was generally outside of the holy city of Jerusalem. The people that had the greatest influence within Jerusalem were the Sadducees, the priesthood, going all the way back to Aaron, the brother of Moses. They had been around for a very, very long time. And not only had the Sadducees amassed great wealth and power, but they had great political connection to the governor of, uh, of Jerusalem who had been appointed by Rome. They knew who Pontius Pilate was personally, 
and Pontius Pilate knew them. That's why they are able to accomplish what no Pharisee or Herodian could ever do, and that is to hand Jesus over to Rome in order to be crucified. Now, our scripture also mentioned the Herodians. The Herodians were political appointees or political supporters of King Herod, not King Herod the Great of the early part of the Gospel account of Matthew who sends the wise man to find Jesus so that then he can kill Jesus, but his sons. Uh, Herod the Great was so great that none of his sons could hold a candle to him, so his geographical area of power and influence was subdivided among his many sons, who were also named Herod. George Foreman's got nothing on the Bible. So what ends up happening is you have all these different groups of people who are looking to amass more power and influence, and in some cases wealth, over other people, and they're combating with each other, because you know what they think? There's only so much wealth to go around, and if everybody's taking a piece, there's less for us. So there were plenty of people that didn't want to pay taxes to Rome. One, it reinforced that they were not sovereign. Two, it was their money. They worked hard for it. They didn't want to give it away. Sound familiar? And three, who wants to pay taxes anyway? Don't you have other things to do? I pay quarterly estimated taxes, and every time I digitally write that check, a piece of my heart goes, oh, because it's a big amount of money, and it's a lot of time and effort, and really, who wants to be doing that anyway? And so there are plenty of Christians that always read this part of the scriptures where Jesus is talking about taxes, and they're like, maybe this time it'll be different. Oh, he said pay taxes. Okay, so here's what's happening. The Pharisees are trying to entrap Jesus. This is kind of par for the course. Our story picks up today on this part of trying to trap Jesus. And they've even brought some Herodians with them just to add a little bit more oomph to their question. And so they're trying to trap him, and they're being so ridiculous when they talk to him. Teacher, we know that you are sincere. You teach the way of God in accordance with the truth and show deference for no one because you do not regard people with partiality. Jesus treats everybody equally, blah, blah, blah. Right? Tell us then what you think. Is it lawful to pay taxes or not? Should we be paying our taxes to the emperor? And Jesus knows what they're doing because that's what happens when you're God incarnate. You know what people are trying to do. And so he says to them, why are you putting me to the test, you hypocrites? Which, by the way, is a pitch for our next mini-series for the next two weeks, Snarky Jesus. Because sometimes Jesus just has to put it out there that you're being ridiculous. And so he calls them hypocrites. And he says, fine, show me the coin, right? I mean, how many times have you taken a look at the dollar bill you have or the $20 bill or maybe you have a $100 bill? You've taken a look at it. And our government still to this day puts all kinds of symbols and words on our money that reinforce the fact that this money is created by and utilized for our government. If you go to another land with a different government, then you have to exchange currency so that that money, which is overseen by that government, is used. So Jesus asked them, give me the coin. Whose face and title are on the coin? Right? This isn't a quiz where I ask you who's on a $20 bill. Right? Wh whose face is on there? And they say, well, the emperor. Yes, Tiberius was on the coin that they handed to Jesus because that's who the emperor was. And then on the backside, it had his title, Tiberius Caesar Augustus of the Divine Augustus, 
son of the divine Augustus. Like even now, it's like these people were taking a playbook out of the old ancient Egyptian playbook of once you become our political leader, you suddenly become a demigod. Didn't work out real well for Egypt, but hey, this is a new day. So they tried it in Rome. Didn't work out real well for Rome either. Because what happens when you tell a person they're now a demigod means that they start acting like a crazy demigod. So they show Tiberius to Jesus. And Jesus says, this money is made by Tiberius for Tiberius. God never tells God's people to make money, ever. God also never tells God's people to make a government, ever, or a king. In fact, kings come into scripture because the Israelites get into the promised land. They have their own land now. They have a sovereign territory, and they look out at everybody else's territory around, and they're like, everybody else has a king, and we feel like our life is lacking without one. Everybody else has a king. Why don't we have a king? God, we want a king. But they don't even tell God. They tell Samuel, who's like, ah, really? You want a king? And God says, okay, look, they're not rejecting you, Samuel. They're rejecting me, and that's fine. Why don't you tell them what happens when you have a king? Guess what number one is? You pay taxes. <laughs> you pay taxes. And they're going to take your sons for their army, and they're going to take your daughters to work in their palace, and they're going to take your land. So you want a king? Okay, you can have a king. And then you get six books. First and Second Kings, First and Second Samuel, and First and Second Chronicles. Just in case you didn't want to read First and Second Kings and First and Second Samuel, you can read First and Second Chronicles. So you get six books telling you it was a bad idea, and it was a human idea to have a king. And God said, "I was your monarch, right? I was your monarch, but you don't want to listen to me. You want somebody that you can see." somebody that you can touch, somebody that can tax you. That's what you want. Okay, fine. Because really, your tithe in every nation in the world is always going to be less than your taxes. Your tithe is less than taxes. A tithe is 10%. When was the last time the IRS said to you, you know what, just pay 10? <laughs> Never! The IRS is like, I'm sorry, but you now make so much money, we need more. You're now in a new bracket. Congratulations. Right? That's not what happens. God says, I don't care if you make $100 a year or you make $100 million a year, 10% is 10%. And 10% of $100 a year hurts just as bad as 10% of $100 million, I guarantee it. Right? When you start thinking about that. However, the tax difference is huge. <laughs> Tax difference changes. And so the taxes were a huge deal then and now. And Jesus says what every Christian kind of wished he didn't say, you have to pay your taxes. You got to pay your taxes. I would love it if we lived in a place where I just had to pay my tithe. That'd be great. Just pay my tithe and call it a day. Thank you, Jesus. But instead, we pay taxes. And the United Methodist Church says we have to pay taxes. Not only does it say we have to pay taxes, now the church is exempted from certain sales tax because we are buying things on behalf of mission and ministry that are supposed to bless the local area that we are. So we're exempted from paying sales tax and we don't have to pay property tax provided it's used only for mission. If we were to buy a piece of property and rent it out, 
you know, buy a house and rent it out to somebody, we might, well, we probably would, we would have to pay taxes on that income and on that property. The only reason you don't have to pay taxes on the parsonage is because clergy lives there. If I didn't live there and you rented it out to somebody out from the goodness of your hearts, you'd have to pay taxes on the property and on the income because there are only certain things that are exempted from paying taxes even for the church. We pay taxes, we pay FICA taxes for our employees. And the United Methodist Church has even tried to close a loophole that the United States has given to clergy of any religion and denomination, which is that we don't have to pay into social security tax. But then we can't receive social security, but most of you don't get to opt out of that, right? If you worked, you were paying social security tax. Now, we could technically choose not to do that. But the United Methodist Church, just like Jesus said, no, the money is created by the government and social security tax is our opportunity to love our neighbor by pooling our resources together and then allowing people to get the money that they need to live. And so clergy, even though we legally can, religiously, we're prohibited from opting out of Social Security because the United Methodist Church understands that we are all in this together. We are here. We are living with all the people in the United States. Whether they like it or not, we are here. And in the United Methodist tradition, we have seen that Christianity is stronger than any government force. I grew up, born in 1980s, right in the thickness of the USSR versus United States tension of the Cold War. I grew up watching a movie called War Games, where it was like, are we going to have global thermonuclear war? Right? That was when it was. And all of a sudden, we get to the 90s, and the USSR, the Soviet Union, collapses. And it was like, well, now who do we have to fear? <laughs> now what are, we, what are we worried about? And it was almost instantaneous, overnight, churches started springing up in the former Soviet Union. And it wasn't like all the Christian kingdoms outside of the USSR were like, quick, send evangelical missionaries right now. Send them over there and plant some churches. Absolutely not. Because even after Lenin and Stalin and Khrushchev and all of the other leaders of the Soviet Union took power and outlawed Christianity, they couldn't kill it. They tried, but they failed. Because Christians are really good at keeping that light, not smothered, but carefully. Carefully keeping their light. It wasn't like all of a sudden people discovered Christ the day after the Soviet Union collapsed. Absolutely not. Russian Orthodox Christians had just been keeping it on the down low for a long time. But now they could come out in the light of day. And we as a denomination recognize that in this country, we are very blessed to be here. We are on the corner of Crozet and proudly here. We don't have to hide. We don't have to be like, there's no Christians here. Pay no attention to us. That's not what's happening. Because we live in a country where we have that freedom. And I have friends in Methodism, clergy from all over the world who don't enjoy that freedom. I have friends in Africa who are constantly battling to be safe in their worship. I have a friend who fled from North Korea because her family wanted to kill her when she said she accepted Jesus Christ. There are Christians all over the world in theocracies that are not Christian, in places where they say, you can't worship Jesus Christ, and Christians say, we'll see about that. And they do. 
And so we are not trying to actively overthrow the government here. We are trying to work to make the government and the institutions better. We are trying to bring the light of Christ into things that might not have gone on to perfection, that they continue to pay attention to the lost and the lonely and the impoverished and the suffering and those that are being crushed by the power of institutions. We do that work in the name of truth and justice and love. We do that work, but we are not like, you know what? We're going to overthrow the government and establish the United States of Methodism. Not happening. Not happening. Nowhere in our book of discipline, especially not our articles of faith, do we advocate installing a bishop over anybody for political power. We don't even do that in the church for political power. That's what's really astounding. If you get anybody from any other Episcopal-led denomination, I'm not just talking about Episcopals, but I'm talking about anybody with an episcopacy, which is a hierarchy of church officials. So, for instance, you have bishops in the Episcopal church, in the Methodist church, in the Anglican church, in the Catholic church. There are other places that have bishops, and those bishops are generally providing oversight not only to local expressions of those denominations, but sometimes they actually have more power. For instance, the most powerful bishop in the world is known as the Pope. And what he says changes what people believe. He is infallible when he speaks on church law. There is no Methodist in the entire world that has to listen to crazy doctrine from a bishop. They can say whatever they want, and you can go, that's nice, because they don't write doctrine. Not in our church. They control where we're appointed as clergy. They order the life of the conference to which they are appointed and oversee administratively, but they cannot change what we believe. No bishop can get up and say, we're done with the Trinity. Well, they can, but the rest of us will go, nobody's listening to you. And in some ways, that's very beautiful and empowering. Probably not if you're a bishop. In fact, I've read repeatedly week after week about the general conference, the global gathering of Methodists, half clergy, half laity, and by the way, bishops, have no voice and no vote at general conference. No voice and no vote. When I go and crash general conference, I have the same power and authority as a bishop. <laughs> Nobody's listening because the power in the church is in the delegations. It's not in the bishops. That's important. Because we don't believe that the most powerful changing force in our world is a top-down structure. Instead, we believe the most powerful force in our world is right here. Right here. That's why Jesus spent so much time with people like us. Because we can change things. And so we don't have to overthrow governments. We don't have to spend our time wondering whether or not we've established the perfect theocracy. Because no, we haven't. By the way, they never nail it in the scriptures, ever, never, never. People are like, well, David was pretty good. Was he? Was he? <laughs> no, got some problems. In fact, you know how you know that there's a problem with King David? I mean, besides all like the women and everything. Besides all of that, you know how there's a problem with King David? Because King David says to God Almighty, I have done very well for myself. I have an amazing house. I live in this gorgeous city, and I want to build you a house, God. I want to build you a house even more grand than my own so that you will always have four walls and a roof. Not this tent thing we've been doing. I want you to have a nice house right here next to me. And God said, 
absolutely not, you are not building me a house. Not because I have questions about your taste and your architectural design, nothing like that. Do you know what God says to David? You have blood on your hands. You have been a warrior and your hands are tainted by the lives that you have taken. And so no, you cannot build my house. And so his son Solomon will get the opportunity to build the house. Because Solomon is not a warrior, he's an intellect. And there ain't no blood on Solomon's hands. But Solomon is not even a better king than his father. They have this familial addiction to too many women. <laughs> According to the scriptures, hundreds of them. It would be like if you went to one of the largest churches, the Virginia Annual Conference, United Methodist Churches, and Solomon married the entire group of women in faith. He would have been better off because at least they were all of one faith, right? Like it would have made more sense. But no, instead they have these problems. But here's the good news. As flawed as every king was in the scriptures, as messed up as the leadership attempts were, as bad as they were about organizing themselves and sustaining order and structure in their governments, as awful failures they were at making sure that they had stability and sovereignty, God never failed them. Never failed them. And so the United Methodist Church says, we can work with what we got as a government. We can work with that. We can work around it. We can work under it. We can work next to it, with it. We can work with whatever we got. Because we have God. And God is going to be here after every single government implodes and fails. God outlasted ancient Egypt. God outlasted Assyria. God outlasted Babylon. God outlasted Persia. God outlasted every single Greco-Roman empire. And God is going to outlast the United States of America, which I hope is here until God comes back. But I like being able to worship and not have to worry about our church being raided. So as we close out this series, I hope it's been an opportunity for you to reflect on who we are and what we believe. Because really... We only have 25 things that cannot be changed. Everything else, if the Lord moves, if we get insight from the Holy Spirit, you know, I baptized a four-month-old today. I can't wait to see what God is going to say through that child. I give it about four years before that child starts talking, and we're like, sounds like God. But yes, my siblings in Christ. You have a firm foundation. And the United Methodist Church, while it is not perfect, has worked very hard to ensure that the pillars upon which it has been built are nothing less than the scriptures in Jesus Christ. And no fire, no earthquake, no rain, no sleet, no snow, no governmental collapse, no economic collapse, no unforeseen event in the future is going to destroy our firm foundation in Jesus Christ. And that isn't just an American Methodist truth. That is a global Methodist truth. Amen. Thanks be to God. Amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, we pray. Amen.